Turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 19 this morning. So Genesis chapter 3. The scripture reading is verses 14 through 19. If you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband He will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. You are dust. To dust you shall return. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray you'd be with us this morning, that you'd glorify your name through our time, that you'd instruct our hearts, change us, conform us into the image of your Son, even through this text, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, it's been quite the past five weeks. Uh, Back in the middle of April, we we began a series in these uh, verses uh, here, 1 through 19, that we called From Total Delight to Total Depravity. As together, we've heard of the fall of not only Adam and Eve, but of all mankind in the Garden of Eden, this perfectly wonderful delightful garden which the perfectly good God prepared just for the crown of his creative work, man. Man who was made in his image, in his likeness. Adam, who was placed into this garden after being formed from the dust of the ground, and Eve, who was made from the rib of man, both enjoyed absolute, unadulterated, and undefiled bliss in a perfectly delightful environment which included perfect fellowship with their perfect creator. A place where everything was just great until it wasn't. Everything was going great until the moment this man and this woman determined of their own volition, of their own free yet limited will to listen to the words of the creatures. Eve to the serpent, Adam to his wife, rather than the words of their creator causing them to be instantly aware of a dramatic change that had taken place as their eyes had been opened, as they realized that they were now naked, as they could now for the first time feel both guilt and the shame that came along with their transgression, their willful violation of God's command. This perfectly good God who provided all they needed to not only survive in the garden, but also to thrive. This perfectly good God who now they found themselves running and hiding from instead of resting and delighting in. This was truly a tragic day in world history that not only had an immediate impact on Adam and Eve, but on literally everyone who would be born of their line as All of humanity would be thrust into a world of chaos and confusion. All of humanity would be doomed to an existence, an environment of depravity and disorder and decay and death, spiritual death and physical death and suffering and affliction and agony. This would now be the the norm of the human race and all because this man took and ate. This morning, we're going to go back to the garden. 
We're going to go back to this man and this woman. We're going to hear further detail of the immediate consequences of their action. We're also going to consider how these consequences have impacted the rest of mankind from generation to generation to generation, all the way up to and including our generation here today. And I, I want to hit the first couple points pretty quickly here. We, we really need another five weeks to go through these judgments here, but Lord willing... I want to give a general overview this morning, and then, as always, encourage you to do more study on your own. Go, go deeper into the text than we can in 45, 50 minutes here. Uh, first of all, and for point one, I want to again remind you of what's been said numerous times this past month, that when Adam fell in the garden, we all fell with him, all of his seed, all of his descendants, all of his posterity, we all fell When Adam fell, Adam had a sinless nature, but when he partook of the fruit, he became enslaved to his new nature, his sinful nature, his spiritually dead nature. And as we've gone along and considered the rest of the story, it's clear that everyone who is conceived and born into this world, everyone who is in Adam's line inherited from him that same sinful nature nature, that same dead nature. It's what's known as the doctrine of original sin, which of course uh, many fallen sinful men and women absolutely despise and outright reject. One of the most common responses or objections to this thoroughly biblical doctrine is, well, how is that fair? Why in the world should I be punished for something that happened almost 6,000 years ago? Just because some guy and his wife disobeyed a clear command from God, the whole race was plunged into enmity with their creator? That doesn't sound right to me. I don't deserve that. I'm a good person. I would never have... Well, it's just not fair, okay? It's not fair. I mean, if that's your mentality, I'd again encourage you to consider that Adam was mankind's best hope in the garden. Remember... Adam didn't have a corrupted nature when he fell. He he had a sinless nature, actually. He had the ability, unlike all of us before regeneration, to choose to not sin. Uh, He wasn't enslaved to sin as all of us were from our birth, from our conception. Yet, even with his inherently good nature, he deliberately chose to disobey God. Adam willingly determined to go against the clear prohibition of God given specifically to him and eat of the tree. And when that happened, Yahweh God, who, for lack of a better term, makes the rules, right, stayed true to his promises of bringing death upon the man, which is the wages of sin in a spiritual sense, while also sovereignly determining that it would not only be Adam who fell, But in fact, all who would proceed from him as he was our representative in the garden. We've talked about this. Now, if you happen to run into somebody who has a problem with the God-ordained consequences of original sin, or even his making Adam to be a representative in the garden, Adam who was our best hope, if, if folks take issue with the idea of God appointing an ambassador or federal head for the race in the fall in the Garden of Eden... I don't think it would be inappropriate to ask them how they can possibly then sincerely trust and willingly submit themselves to God's next appointed representative, right? If they don't like the idea of a divinely appointed ambassador, ask them how they feel about the one who would find himself in agony in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prepared to take the place of and bear the full weight of divine wrath for all those whom he represented. You see, that's the good news of Genesis chapter 3. Sure, sin and death and divine sentencing entered into the garden on that fateful day, but that wasn't all that entered in. What else came into the world as a result of this original sin? Redemption. Reconciliation. Restoration. And we even see it right here in this divine sentencing. Watch how this text unfolds this morning, okay? Watch how, just as we've seen a number of times over these past few weeks, how even in the midst of divine judgment, where we expect to 
See God Almighty pour out his furious wrath upon these wretched, miserable sinners? We instead see a tremendous display of divine mercy shown toward them. Okay, watch this. That's what I want us to see in this text this morning. The original order, it was good. It was very good. Then the corruption of that order and the consequences of that corruption. But ultimately, the mercy of God in the midst of these consequences and judgment. Okay, let's do the serpent very quickly. Point two in your outline. We spent a bit of time on him last week, uh, uh, all, of, all of last week on verse 15, but we have to come back to 14. Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, then he lays out the judgment, okay? The original order, the serpent was some sort of reptilian creature, likely even standing upright before verse 14. Later, he's called the dragon in Revelation chapter 20. And in this dragon, the serpent was indwelled by and controlled by none other than Satan. Satan, who was at this point, uh, or at one point, among the chief angels in heaven. We've read of his beauty, we've read of his prominent position in both Ezekiel and Isaiah, along with the details of his desire to usurp the authority of God, which ultimately led to his falling from heaven down to the earth, where We then meet him possessing this animal and talking with the woman through it. This is a talking serpent here, okay? And I want to show you this. A key indicator of how Yahweh God feels about Satan is given to us in the transition from verses 13 to 14. Remember how in verses 9 through 13, Yahweh God gave both the man and the woman an opportunity to come clean and tell him what was going on here. Do you remember that? To, to come clean, to confess their iniquity, maybe even repent of their transgression. Well, the devil is afforded no such opportunity. This is great. Verse 9. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Verse 11, Yahweh says, Who told you that you were naked, Adam? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then in verse 13, Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? Then in our verse 14, Yahweh God says to the serpent, not, okay, what's your side of things, Satan? But rather, because you have done this, cursed are you. You see that? He doesn't give him an opportunity to talk. He just says, I know you did it. Because you've done this, you are cursed. You're cursed. Cursed are you more than any of the cattle, more than every beast of the field, On your belly you will go, dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, some some think this means that other animals aren't cursed, but only the serpent. Others feel that all animals are cursed, but the serpent is simply more cursed than all the others. And of course, there will always be those who believe that this is all poetic or symbolic language representing whatever they feel it should, uh, should represent on any given day or season of their life. I tend to believe that this speaks of the serpent being more cursed than any of the other beasts, okay? We know both the animal kingdom and the very creation itself has been negatively impacted by the fall. In fact, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers with us, for the creation was subjected to futility, the creation. The, the whole creation was impacted by the fall, including animals. Animals don't sin, but animals deal with the consequences of sin, right? No death on the earth before verse 20. Yet next week, Chris is going to tell us of at least one animal who got the old, right? With the blood. And, and it would continue on from there. All animals suffer to some degree because of the fall, because of the sin of man. But here God says to the serpent, your consequences, serpent, are going to be even more severe than their consequences. First of all, those legs of yours, they're gone. Forget about the legs. You're going to crawl around on your belly. You're going to move from place to place, slithering around. It'll be very difficult, very laborious. You'll be extremely vulnerable to predators, including human beings. It says on your belly you will go. dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, this doesn't mean that dust will 
sustain them nutritionally. Uh, the dust isn't the main food source of snakes. Rather, it's Yahweh's way of saying, you're going to live a life of humiliation. Okay? Utter humiliation. In fact, the Bible would go on to, to use the same verge, uh, excuse me, verbiage to demonstrate humans putting other humans in subjection to them and, and having uh, dominion over them. For example, Solomon prays to Yahweh in Psalm 72, O God, give the king your judgments. May he also have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the desert creatures kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. You lick the dust because you're bowing before another man. This is a picture of humiliation, degradation, domination. Interestingly, in the millennial kingdom, we read of many other animals being restored to precursed conditions, right? Lambs and wolves hanging out with each other, leopards and goats, the young of cows and bears laying down, resting. A bit of the enmity between snakes and, and humans is lessened as children will put their hands on the viper's den. But the humiliation on God's, uh, or, or God's dominion over the serpent will still be there. How do we know? All we have to do is look at the menu of what's going to be uh, there for the snake's food in the animal kingdom. During the thousand-year reign of Christ, the wolf and the lamb will graze together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will still be the serpent's food. Still. That's his lot in life till the end of the world. He's still going to eat dust. And I was encouraged to see so many commentators mention how every time we see a snake, every time you and I see a snake, while the animal itself, the actual animal, is not evil, they should, they should remind us of Satan's humiliation. Every time you see a snake, you should think, Satan, he's being humiliated. He's been, he's been dominated here. Look at him, how he eats that dust. How embarrassing for him. Uh, this is a humiliation that, which really started in Satan's fall from heaven. It continued... Uh, in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, it culminated in the cross. It would be carried through to the end of the world when he is tossed in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever by the seed of the woman who will crush his head. He will live out the rest of his days in utter humiliation. Now, mercy in the midst of judgment here? Not much for the serpent. Certainly none for Satan. However, For the people whom Satan tries to devour, people of the dust, by the way, Matt pointed out to me last week, that's a very interesting thought, people of the dust. There would be much mercy given for the people of God. Not only would Yahweh allow his people to triumph over the devil and even partake in the crushing of the serpent's head under our feet, says Paul in Romans 16, But the ultimate victory for the people of God would come through his chosen representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, after having his heel bruised at the cross, would be triumphantly raised from the dead, having conquered sin and death and Satan for all those who belong to him by grace alone, through faith alone, and the promises of divine redemption alone. So you see, even in this sentencing of Satan, the sentencing of the serpent, we see that there's divine mercy in the midst of judgment for those who belong to the Lord. You see that? Now, having said all that, we have to move along to the next sentencing, including the woman, who really kicked off this whole thing, okay, being de- deceived by Satan. Again, after she was made from Adam's rib, she was brought into this perfectly good environment as well. Yet she was tempted by the devil to satiate or satisfy the lusts that were in her heart. She, she fell into the enticement of the evil one who said that she deserved to be like the most high God. She was conned. She was hoodwinked. She was duped, fooled, bamboozled, snowed, you might say. She was deceived, right? Right? Let's not beat around the bush. Well, let's see what happens, not only with Eve, but with all women since as a result of the fall. Again, back in verse 13, God, Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? She said, the serpent deceived me. I ate. 
was a very nice attempt. Classic blame shift and deflection she learned from her husband, but it didn't work because verse 16, verse 16 is, is right around the corner. To the woman, Yahweh said, I will greatly multiply, multiply your pain and conception. In pain, you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. Okay? Let's talk about childbirth first. Now, there was a reason I didn't preach this last week on Mother's Day. <laughs> it wouldn't have been the first time that I had stuck my foot in my mouth on this particular topic. I'm learning here, too. I'm growing. I'm growing just right along with my brothers in Christ here. About five years ago when our son was born, Haddon, uh, I remember taking Lindsay to the hospital. And it was our second, you know, so I just kind of pulled up to the front, waiting for him to bring out the wheelchair. And I said, well, I'll park the truck and I'll be right behind you. Well, as she's getting out, I, I say, uh, hey, love, I just uh, want to encourage you uh, as you're going through this process to try to take a minute to remember back to Genesis 3. <laughs> And to remember back to Eve, I mean, this is like a fulfillment of this. It's pretty incredible. And she looked at me like, now, I wasn't, honestly here, I wasn't trying to be rude. I wasn't trying to say it in a rude way. I was just kind of trying to say, this is pretty cool. Like, it's actually coming to pass it. <laughs> but it wasn't long. I mean, it was like the walk in before I realized how incredibly idiotic it was to say that at this moment. We say some stupid things. And I'll tell you, I feel especially foolish after digging into this text a little bit more. i got to be honest with you. First of all, again, original order. God said to the man and woman, uh, pre-curse, be fruitful and multiply. That means they were going to have children. And I'm not sure what the pain level was like pre-fall. I'm not, I'm not sure what it's like now. It doesn't look pleasant, I'll tell you that. But had Adam and Eve not sinned, they would have very likely went on to have children, again, in a perfectly delightful environment. Now, would it have been a delightful delivery? I can only speculate, and only in my mind. Not before my wife or any of you women here today. See, I'm learning. I can only speculate what this felt like. But look again at what it says. When the corruption comes, when the disorder comes through sin, an increase in pain takes place. Look at the wording again. I will greatly multiply or increase your pain. I will multiply your pain and or in conception. Now, in order to see an increase or multiplication in something, something had to be there in the first place, right? And it makes me think that there may have been some pain pre-fall, but I don't know that. Here's what we do know. In pain, the woman, Eve, who some, including Josephus, said had as many as 50 children. I don't know how they know that, but in pain, she would conceive and bear children. There would be increased pain in childbirth. The, the bringing forth of children would be painful, physically painful. The birth will be painful. That's clear from this text and from history. But I also believe, and this is why my little comment outside that hospital was so, so moronic, that the woman also bears the emotional and spiritual pain that comes from having to raise the little ones whom they've birthed into a corrupted and cursed environment. I think that's even more painful to some degree. Uh, actually, this word for pain here is esebeth, which means sorrow, grief, affliction, and pain. I, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception and childbearing. Oh, the anguish of raising up a little baby in this evil and corrupt world system. Where, where even the, the process of conception and childbearing is corrupted. Many feel the emotional and spiritual pain of rape 
and incest and abuse and miscarriages, babies with defects, sicknesses, illnesses in the womb. And oh, how the mothers bear the, the brunt of that, right? Fathers do as well to some degree, but, but, but the mothers, the nurturing mothers, they bear the full weight of this curse. They really do. There has been sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow as a result of this judgment. Pain and sorrow in childbirth is a consequence of corruption. But there's also mercy in childbearing, isn't there? And grace and love, amazing grace and abounding love, right? I love the illustration that Jesus gives in John chapter 16 as he's telling his disciples that he's going away. You should turn there and see it for yourself. Go ahead, John 16. Look at it in your own Bibles. John 16. Uh, Jesus is going back to the Father in heaven, okay? He's leaving these men after three years. Now imagine being with the Lord Jesus Christ all day, every day for three years. The joy, the peace, the learning, the witness of the miraculous, the words of eternal life, and you get to be with him all day, every day. Then one day, just like that, he's gone, okay? It would be heartbreaking, right? It would be devastating. But he says, listen, you will see me again. And he was right. Not only would he return bodily after his resurrection from the dead, but he would one day bring them to where he was going, into glory. He's trying to tell them this in so many words, in words that they could grasp, the words that they could understand. And here's how he did it, verse 19. Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will cry and lament but the world will rejoice. Meaning, God's people will mourn when I die. Satan's people will celebrate when I die. That's what he's saying there. But then he assures them and comforts them. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He said, whenever a woman is in labor, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, She no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Even in the pain, agony, and sorrow and grief that that comes in, in childbirth, we see mercy, right? The moment that little one is placed onto her mother's chest, suffering and sorrow turns to joy. And what a, what a gift these, these precious little babies are, a gift to hold and to cherish, to raise, to love, to teach, to instruct, to influence. Children are a most prized possession from the Lord. They're a gift from the Lord. And, and you have the awesome responsibility as mothers of raising up these little ones in a way that's honoring and pleasing to him, right? That's certainly a privilege and a mercy given to the mother. Not to mention, the Savior himself would be born of a woman, right? The seed of a woman. A descendant of the first woman in the garden whose first birth was one of pain and sorrow, yet sorrow that would be turned to joy. Unfortunately, though, that's not the end of Eve's sentencing, okay? Yahweh says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, what does this mean? Your desire will be for your husband. Some say, your desire will be for your husband. She will long for her husband sexually and otherwise. Well, that sounds kind of (laughs) nice. Sounds more like a blessing to me. Others say, this desire means, we'll ha- means woman will have a great longing, yearning, and psychological dependence on her husband. Quote, this is not merely sexual yearning. It includes the attraction that a woman experiences for man, which she cannot root from her nature. 
Independent feminists may seek to banish it, but it persists in cropping out. Meh. Maybe. Closer, at least. And of course there are more, but they all fall short of sufficiently explaining what this word desire means. How do I know? How do we know? Because of context. Okay? And really, immediate context. Like 15 verses later, context. If you just turn your Bible one page to the right, or if you just glance over to the, to the opposing page there, this next section, you'll see the very same words, both desire and rule, used in chapter 4, verse 7. In verse 6, Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same words. This closely to our text here. Same words. Desire. Teshuka. A longing, craving, and rule. Mashel, master, reign over, have dominion over. Sin's desire is for you, Cain. That doesn't sound like a blessing to me, does it to you? Sin's desire is for you. You must rule over it, Cain. You must dominate that sin, reign over that sin. Now, in the context of our verse, pre-fall, it was never the will for uh, the Lord's will for the man to dominate or reign over his wife. Okay, that's, that's just not how the pre-fall conditions were. The, the original order of headship, pre-fall, was that the man was to lead his wife. Okay, and he, he was leading his wife in a way that was caring and loving and protective. He longed to see the best for his wife. He cherished his wife, right? And likewise, she longed to be led because she was confident that her husband was in submission to God. That was the pre-fall condition. She would even aid him in his leading, right? She would help him. She would encourage him. She would support him. They were a team. They were a team. But on this now corrupted earth throughout the ages, there's a struggle for dominance, okay? That's what we're seeing here. It's a struggle for dominance. Part of the curse is that the woman's desire will be for her husband, meaning she will want to dominate her husband and control him and usurp his position as the rightful head. And in response, the man will react by dominating her. Okay? Very often manifested through intimidating and abusive tactics where he uses his greater size, his stronger voice, his overall strength and power to crush her, to crush the woman. You can see the disorder here. You can see the consequences of corruption. We see it all day, every day. One author said this, one preacher, uh, the curse on Eve was that a woman's desire would henceforth be to usurp the place of man's headship and that he would resist that desire and even more strongly exercise his control over her. The Hebrew word here translated rule is not the same as that used in Genesis 1.28. Rather, it represented a new, despotic kind of authoritarianism that was not in God's original plan for man's headship. With the fall and its curse came the distortion of women's proper submission, submissiveness and the man's proper authority. That is where the battle of the sexes began, where women's liberation and male chauvinism came into existence. Women have a sinful propensity to usurp men's authority, and men have a sinful propensity to put women under their feet. That's a bad combination. But hear this. The divine decree that man would rule over woman in this way was a part of God's curse on humanity, and it takes a manifestation of grace in Christ by the filling of the Holy Spirit to resolve the created order and harmony of proper submission in a relationship that has become corrupted and disordered by sin. Meaning, again, as awful as this battle has been, and it has been awful, we see divine mercy in the midst of judgment. Okay? Just like that quote says, uh, God gives grace and hope. He can restore order and harmony through the power of His Holy Spirit. 
And it's a mercy that comes through a proper understanding of his written revelation. Okay, specifically a proper understanding of the biblical roles within marriage. That we are indeed equal. We are equal in terms of worth, in terms of being recipients of God's love and grace. We are equal in matters of salvation, redemption, rewards, etc. But we are different, men and women. We, we, we have different roles. We have different functions and different abilities and gifts. We complement one another. These, these gifts and roles complement one another. Brad preached on biblical headship last month, and I did a couple sermons on it last fall. A, a proper understanding of and then submission to the biblical perspective and prescription for marriage is necessary to limit and even eliminate much of the effects of the curse mentioned here. Genesis 3. You have to have a proper understanding. For example, Paul says, Wives, you ought to be subject to their own husbands as to the Lord. Now, true, regenerate, believing, born-again women, they don't resent submitting to the Lord, right? They don't don't resent submitting to, to Jesus Christ. No, why? Because they know that he has their best in mind. They run toward his headship. They run toward his leadership. They run toward his lordship and his wisdom to his authority. In the same way, the pre-fall order was that man, or excuse me, woman submitted to the headship of her husband willingly and gladly because she knew that ultimately it was for her benefit and it was for God's glory. This was God's design for marriage. Well, I'm here to tell you, The only way this is going to work is if the man is in submission first, okay? The man leads his wife, and the man leads through submission. How how do men submit? They submit by, unlike Adam, obeying the words of their God. We're in submission to God, to Christ, first, we're in submission to his word, like where Paul writes, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present her to himself, excuse me, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Do we see that, men? We have, we've had guys in this church, they love that part about submit. The woman submit, woman submit, but they neglect to read the rest of this text. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, of course not. Nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. The mercy in the midst of this divine judgment is only possible, of course, if both parties are saved. If they're truly regenerate, if they're truly indwelled by the Holy Spirit and in complete subjection to the word of God, if only one or neither of the parties are truly regenerate, it's not going to work out. I'm just here to tell you, you may be able to tolerate each other, but it won't be in a, a biblical God-honoring union. You'll have a whole life of disunity and disorder. That's why we begin every counseling session, every marriage case with, well, do you know the Lord? Are you saved? Do you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you? Are you going to submit to the counsel we give you according to his word? If you're not truly saved, why don't you go down to the Christian counselor down the road? They use modern-day psychology with a little Christianity sprinkled in. Or why don't you just go to a secular counselor? They'll give you some tips on how to have a better marriage. We don't do that. We say, here's what the Lord says. And well, in order for you to obey what the Lord says, you have to be indwelled with the Lord's Spirit, right? Now, if you want true healing, true restoration, true marital harmony and reconciliation, you both have to submit yourselves under the authority of the Word of God. 
which only truly happens for those who have submitted their entire lives to the authority of the Lord, a submission which begins by being born again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And I invite you to come to the Lord today if, if you never have. Well, anyway, that's the sentencing of the woman. We must move on now to the sentencing of the man when we have seven minutes left. <coughs> <laughs> Now, a part of this I have to save for a couple weeks from now. I'm not trying to duck this, okay? I'm not ducking it. We'll come back to the man's judgment. We'll get ours, but time just won't allow today. We'll come back to this when we hit cultivation in verse 23, where Yahweh, God, sends the man out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. That's when the punishment will take effect. The verdict and the sentencing, however... It is read here in verse 17. Then to Adam, Yahweh said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Note all the days of your life. Not just during childbirth. Not just as your kids grow up in this rotten world. But all the days. Every day you will endure pain and affliction. And specifically through the cursing of the ground. The ground which, in its original state, again, was very good. Fruits on trees, plants with their seeds for both human and animal consumption. These things were grown in abundance and were all perfectly good. But not anymore. Not anymore. Now, now man will experience painful labor. Just a different kind of labor. Man will contend with weeds and thorns, and thistles, and unproductive crops, poor harvests, which had the potential to cause both you and all your family to go hungry, to starve to death. Man's life would, be, would now be full of unsatisfying, sorrowful, even painful toil and work until that day the earth swallows him back up. This is really a sentence of struggle, and difficulty, and discontentment in work until death. This is why the preacher of Ecclesiastes said, I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows what he's going to do with it? For what does a man get in all his labor and in the striving of his heart with which he labors under the sun? How depressing. That's why Ecclesiastes is my favorite book. (laughs) Now, we know the Lord shows mercy by allowing men to work, right? This is the mercy of the Lord. There's mercy in our work. We provide for our families and others. We can honor the Lord in our labors and our efforts. There's some degree of satisfaction and reward and contentment for a job well done, even, right? Should have seen Colton Chan out there yesterday, ripping up a huge root outside the church. He was hacking away at it. And then in a magnificent display of sheer brute force and testosterone... reaches down and yanks that thing out of the ground. And we all stood around just in awe. It was wonderful. (laughs) Sure, there's some reward and satisfaction and a job well done. But ultimately, our striving, our efforts, along with everything else, were corrupted by the fall of Adam. And, And they're not able to be enjoyed as they should. More on that in a couple weeks, Lord willing. To close our time, I do want to quickly touch on the last part of man's sentencing where he always says, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. You are dust, to dust you shall return. This is a clear indication that, uh, of the physical death that came through Adam's original rebellion which would, be, uh, which would subsequently come to all of his posterity. He would die. Remember, God said, don't eat from that tree. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Actually, better translated, dying, you will die. Double die. 
Man had the opportunity to live forever. Maybe not forever on earth, but again, the tree of life that sat in the middle of that garden, and the same tree that will be in the eternal garden, was right there as a symbol of everlasting life. The opportunity for life was there. But it was quickly extinguished by the disobedience of the one man. And death has reigned supreme ever since. Everyone, with with only a couple of exceptions, Enoch and Elijah, has or will experience physical death. Everyone will die. Everyone in this room right now will die. You will die. Physically, unless the Lord comes to gather his church, if you're a part of it, we're all going to die physically. We, we are not immortal, physically speaking. We are mere mortals. We get sick. We get in an accident, get some disease. We get murdered, drowned, burned, fall off a cliff, or go by some other means. Some folks say, well, we die of natural causes. But my friends, there's nothing natural about death. Nothing natural about death. Death came into the world through sin. It's a curse. It, it's one that we all have to face. Okay. Now, having said that, I do think there are mercies even in the midst of this divine judgment. Okay. First of all, let's just be honest with ourselves. Sometimes it's a blessing when certain individuals pass from this earth. Right? I mean, I think of child abusers. Spousal abusers, rapists, murders, liars, swindlers, cultists, false teachers even. I don't miss them. Do you? Think of the tyrants and the dictators throughout world history, corrupt world leaders oppressing millions while they sat at the top and got fat. Think of our own elected officials. Could you imagine them them living for more than 100 years, retaining their power for centuries or millennia? No. I mean, there, there's a certain grace at times uh, in the reality that certain people perish, that people perish. And there's also a mercy for us not having to live forever in a world like this, right? Let's just be honest, especially for the believer, which is why we cry out, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, come get your people. For to us, to die is gain. Uh, It's far better, Paul says, to be with the Lord. Yet we stay here to proclaim the good news, knowing that he is just as patient towards sinners as he is gracious to them. And we want to be a part of that. Amen? Yeah. Most of the time, however, death is, is very sad, very tragic, very heartbreaking. We mourn those who die. We grieve the passing of loved ones, whether believers or unbelievers, those whose bodies have returned to the earth. And it all stems back to this moment in the garden. And because of one man, because of Adam, because of his original sin, not Eve's, not the serpent's, but because of this one man, we all have to face the consequences, including being slaves to our own sin nature, And the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, physical death. The greatest mercy, mercy though, we don't have to remain spiritually dead, okay? We can be made spiritually alive. In fact, more alive than we've ever been. And we can long for that day when our souls are reunited with our bodies and live forever in a place where there is no more death where there is no more sickness or sadness or mourning or tears, pain in labor, the strife and enmity and conflict and abuse and oppression and domination in marriage. There will be none of that. In fact, even in the here and now, we can be delivered from the sting of death, which is sin, and we can be delivered from the fear of death. As Paul says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We we can be delivered from the power of death and the looming reality of eternal death, even now by by faith alone in the one who conquered death. Okay? 
Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives men and women, us sinful men and women, the opportunity, the mercy in the midst of judgment to conquer death and to overcome death, just as he overcame death, right? The writer of Hebrews says, through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their life. My brothers and sisters, we live in a, in a corrupted and cursed world, a world full of sin and sorrow and death and sadness. We, we live in a world where many... Many men and women are in bondage and enslavement to their own sin nature they inherited from the first man, Adam, from their conception. We were all conceived and born subjected to and enslaved to sin. We were all born into a world where the only real guarantee is that we will one day perish from it. That, that's the just judgment and sentencing upon God, uh, from God upon the human race. It, it just is what it is. But, but in the midst of all this cursing, we cannot miss the abundant mercy, grace, and steadfast love that Yahweh God displays for those who are His. As He graciously gives all people everywhere the opportunity to hear His call, to believe His word, to repent and turn from their sins to trust in his gospel of grace which says that he sent his son into this world to die to to live a perfect life only to die on a roman cross where he would bear the penalty of sin for all who would believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation whoever believes in him he says in his death burial and resurrection will not perish but have life everlasting Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death for sinners is the only way to be delivered from this curse in Genesis chapter 3. He's the only way. He said it himself, I am the way, not a way among many ways. I am the way. He's the only way to reconciliation with the Father. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. So let me just ask you this morning. Have you come to the Father on this way? Have you come to the Father through Jesus the Son? Are you giving him the glory for the great things he hath done? If not, I would <coughs> invite you and I would, I would implore you to cry out to him. Ask him to save your everlasting soul, to save you to an eternal life with him in glory and to save you from his righteous wrath and all of eternity in hell. I, I would implore you to ask him to reverse the curse that was passed down to you through Adam, to deliver you from the curse of that original sin and even set you free from your enslavement to your own sin. And I would invite you to do so this morning if you never have. All by his grace and all for his glory. Amen? Amen.